Section 8 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 2, Part 4. Those who, from the vantage ground of two centuries, survey the evil times in which the lot of Charles I was cast, will be dubious whether any peace could have been lasting. All that was good and vital in the spirit of feudality was nearly extinct, but at the same time, the people were vexed and encumbered with what we may be permitted to call its lifeless husks. Among these, the abuses appertaining to the court of wards were alone sufficient to impel the most enduring people to revolution, but the Puritan patriots, so far from reforming these real wrongs, were contending for the sinecures connected with them. There were many individuals in those days, as in these, to whom all worship but that of mammon was indifferent, who, incited by the splendor of the new aristocracy, which had been built on the spoils of the monasteries, remembered that the Church of England, if they could induce the king to join in the robbery, would afford goodly prey, and these were the most impracticable of all agitators. Nevertheless, it was the bounden duty of the queen to have promoted peace, however hopeless of its continuance, instead of opposing its establishment. With the skill in portraying character, which forms Lord Clarendon's principal claim to literary merit, he has displayed the influence that Henrietta possessed over the mind of her husband, and thus analyzes it with its effects. The king's affection to the queen was a composition of conscience, love, generosity, and gratitude, and all those noble affections which raise the passion to the greatest height, insomuch that he saw with her eyes and determined by her judgment. Not only did he pay her this adoration, but he desired that all men should know that he was swayed by her, and this was not good for either of them. The queen was a lady of great beauty, excellent wit, and humor, and made him a just return of the noblest affections, so that they were the true ideal of conjugal attachment in the age in which they lived. When the queen was admitted to the knowledge and participation of the most secret affairs, from which she had been carefully restrained by the Duke of Buckingham, she took great delight in examining and discussing them, and from thence forming judgment of them, in which her passions, or prejudices, were always strong. She had felt so much pain in knowing nothing and meddling with nothing during the time of the great favorite, that now she took no pleasure but in knowing all things and disposing of all things as he had done, not considering that the universal prejudice that great man had undergone was not in reference to his person but his power, and that the same power would be equally obnoxious to complaint if it resided in any other person than the king himself, nor did she more desire to possess this unlimited power, longer than that all the world should notice that she was the entire mistress of it, and it was her majesty's misfortune, and that of the kingdom, that she had no one about her to advise and inform her of the temper of the people. And so thought the queen herself when it was too late. For a few months the beautiful city of Oxford was the seat of the English court, over which the queen presided. There all that was loyal, refined, and learned gathered round the royal family, and for a while hope existed that the discontents of the people would be finally silenced by force of arms. From such a result only evil could have ensued. No reflective person, to whom the good of their country was dear, could have wished it. 
While the spirits of the queen were yet sustained by martial enthusiasm, she wrote from Oxford the subjoined little French billet to the loyal defender of York in the spring of the year 1644. Queen Henrietta Maria to the Marquis of Newcastle. My cousin, I have received your letter by Parsons with the account of all that has passed at Newcastle, and am very glad you have not yet eaten rats, so that the Scotch have not yet eaten Yorkshire oat cakes. All will go well, I hope, as you are there to order about it. Your faithful and very good friend, Henriette Marie R. Oxford, this March 15th. All the pride of the queen is laid aside while cheering her faithful partisan. In these few lines, she shows she had made herself mistress of the customs of the northern counties. She alludes to their provincial food, the oat cakes, with the certainty of giving delight to the garrison. The queen remained at Oxford during the change of fortune that befell the king's cause. It was at the commencement of the year 1644 that the royalist poet, Davenant, addressed to Her Majesty some lines which Pope imitated in his youth when they were forgotten, and founded his early fame upon them. Perhaps their harmony was never surpassed in English verse. To the Queen at Oxford. Fair as unshaded light, or as the day of the first year, when every month is May, sweet as the altar smoke, or as the new unfolded bud swelled by the morning's dew, kind as the willing saints, but calmer far than in their dreams, forgiven votaries are. But what, sweet excellence, what dost thou hear? This last line conveyed a question prompted by the delicate situation of the queen. Oxford was likely to remain no secure harbor for her in her approaching hour of peril and weakness. The king delayed the agonizing separation from his adored consort, till the approach of the parliamentary forces made a battle near Oxford inevitable. Previously to the Battle of Newbury, so fatal to his cause, Charles I escorted his beloved wife to Abingdon, and there, on the 3rd of April, 1644, with streaming eyes and dark forebodings for the future, this attached pair parted, never to meet again on earth. The queen's first destination was Bath, where she sought the cure of an agonizing, rheumatic fever, of that kind which is sharpened into intolerable acuteness by anxiety of mind. This complaint was called, in the phraseology of the day, a room, and thus the queen names it in the letter which announced her arrival at Bath. Queen Henrietta Maria to King Charles my dear heart, Fred Cornwallis will have told you all our voyage, or journey, as far as Abbury, and the state of my health. Since my coming hither, I find myself ill, as well as in the ill rest I have, as in the increase of my room. I hope this day's rest will do me good. I go tomorrow to Bristol, to send you back the carts, many of them are already returned. Farewell, my dear heart. I cannot write more than that I am absolutely yours. Bath, April 21st, 1644. Nothing could be more calamitous than the queen's prospects in her approaching time of pain and weakness. Ill and sorrowful as she already was, she sought refuge in the loyal city of Exeter, where, amidst the horrors and consternation of an approaching siege, she was in want of everything. She took up her abode at Bedford House in Exeter. The king had written to summon to her assistance his faithful household physician, Theodore Mayern. His epistle was comprehended in one emphatic line in French. 
King Charles I, to Dr. Sir Theodore Mayern. Mayern, for the love of me, go to my wife, C.R. The Queen likewise wrote an urgent letter in French to Dr. Mayern, entreating him to come to her assistance, to the following effect. Queen Henrietta Maria, to Sir Theodore Mayern, Exeter, this 3rd of May. Monsieur de Mayern, my indisposition does not permit me to write much, to entreat you to come to me, if your health will suffer you, but my malady will, I trust, sooner bring you here than many lines. For this cause I say no more, but that retaining always in my memory the care you have ever taken of me, in my utmost need, it makes me believe that, if you can, you will come, and that I am, and shall be ever, your good mistress and friend, Henriette Marie R. There is great generosity of mind in this letter. The queen does not say, as many a one does, who requires impossibilities in this exacting age. Help me now, or all you have hitherto done will be of no use. But in a nobler spirit, if you cannot come to me in my extreme need, I shall still remain grateful for all your previous benefits. Such we deem offers a good instance of that ill-defined virtue, gratitude. The faithful physician did not abandon his royal patrons in the hour of their distress. He obeyed their summons, though we have reason to believe that he looked not with affection on the queen, deeming her religion one of the principal causes of the distracted state of England. Henrietta likewise wrote to her sister-in-law, the queen regent of France, Anne of Austria, giving her an account of her distressed state. That queen, who was herself just set free by death from the tyranny of her husband's minister, Cardinal Richelieu, was enabled to obey the impulses of her generous nature. She sent 50,000 pistoles, with every article needful for a lady in a delicate situation, and her own sage femme, Madame Perron, to assist Henrietta in her hour of trouble. Perhaps the best trait in the character of Queen Henrietta occurs at this juncture. She reserves a very small portion of the donation of the Queen of France for her own use, and sent the bulk of it to the relief of her distressed husband. Boundless generosity, a generosity occurring in the time of privation, was a characteristic of Henrietta. Meantime, Sir Theodore Mayern arrived at Exeter, May 28th, he traveled from London in the Queen's chariot with Sir Martin Lister. Although so faithful in his prompt attendance to the summons of his royal master in behalf of the Queen, he was rough and uncompromising enough in his professional consultations. The Queen, feeling the agony of an overcharged brain, said one day at Exeter, pressing her hand on her head, Mayern, I am afraid that I shall go mad some day. Nay, replied the caustic physician, your majesty need not fear going mad, you have been so some time. The queen, when she related this incident to Madame de Motteville, mentioned the incident as Mayern's serious opinion of her bodily health, but his reply is couched more like a political sneer than a medical opinion. The queen gave birth to a living daughter at Exeter, June 16, 1644, at Bedford House, and in less than a fortnight afterwards, the army of the Earl of Essex advanced to besiege her city of refuge. On the approach of this hostile force, the queen, who was in a very precarious state of health, sent to the Republican general, requesting permission to retire to Bath for the completion of her recovery. 
Essex made answer, that it was his intention to escort her majesty to London, where her presence was required, to answer to Parliament for having levied war in England. This was tantamount to avowing an intention of leading her to the metropolis as a prisoner, and the French writers aver that Essex actually went so far as to set a price on her head. The daughter of Henry the Great summoned all the energy of character, which she had derived from that mighty sire, to triumph over the pain and weakness that oppressed her feminine frame, at this awful crisis. She rose from her sickbed, and escaped from Exeter in disguise, with one gentleman and one lady, and her confessor. She was constrained to hide herself in a hut, three miles from Exeter Gate, where she passed two days without anything to nourish her, couched under a heap of litter. She heard the parliamentary soldiers defile on each side of her shelter. She overheard their imprecations and oaths. That they would carry the head of Henrietta to London, as they should receive from the parliament, a reward for it of fifty thousand crowns. When this peril was passed, she issued out of her hiding place, and accompanied by the three persons who shared her dangers, traversed the same road on which the soldiers had lately marched, though they had made it nearly impassable. She traveled in extreme pain, and her anxious attendants were astonished that she did not utterly fail on the way. The rest of her ladies and faithful attendants stole out of Exeter, in various disguises, to meet her. Their rendezvous was at night in a miserable cabin, in a wood near Exeter and Plymouth. The valiant dwarf, Geoffrey Hudson, was of this party. He had grown up to the respectable stature of three feet and a half, and showed both courage and sagacity in this escape. The queen, whose original destination was Plymouth, found Pendennis Castle a safer place of refuge. She arrived with her company in doleful plight at this royal fortress on the 29th of June, 1644. As a friendly Dutch vessel laid in the bay, the queen resolved to embark at once, and she sailed with her faithful attendants from the western coast early the following morning. Nevertheless, the worst perils of this escape were not yet past. Meantime, her royal husband made incredible efforts to succor his beloved Henrietta, and urged by despair, fought his way to Exeter by means of a series of minor victories, which were complete because he was entirely his own general. So near were this loving pair towards meeting once more, that Charles entered Exeter triumphantly, but ten days after the queen sailed from Pendennis. Lady Morton presented to the king the little princess, left to her care on the flight of the unfortunate queen. For the first and last time, the hapless monarch bestowed on his poor babe a paternal embrace. He caused one of his chaplains to baptize this little one, Henrietta Anne, after her kind aunt of France and her mother. He relieved Exeter, and left an order on the customs for the support of his infant, who remained there for some time, in the charge of her governess, Lady Morton. Queen Henrietta did not reach the shores of her native land without a fresh trial to her courage. The vessel in which she had embarked was chased by a cruiser in the service of the Parliament. Several cannon shots were fired at the vessel in which she was embarked, and the danger of being taken or sunk seemed to her imminent. In this exigence, the Queen took the command of the vessel. She forbade any return to be made of the cannonading, 
for fear of delay, but urged the pilot to continue his course, and every sail to be set for speed. And she charged the captain, if their escape were impossible, to fire the powder magazine and destroy her with the ship, rather than permit her to fall alive into the hands of her husband's enemies. At this order, her ladies and domestics sent forth the most piercing cries, she meantime maintaining a courageous silence, her high spirit being wound up to brave death rather than the disgrace to herself and the trouble to her husband, which would have ensued if she had been dragged a captive to London. The cannonading continued till they were nearly in sight of Jersey, when a shot hit the queen's little bark and made it stagger under the blow. Everyone on board gave themselves over for lost, as the mischief done to the rigging made the vessel slacken sail. At that moment, a little fleet of Dieppe vessels hove in sight and hastened to the scene of action. This friendly squadron took the queen's battered bark under their protection, and the enemy sheared off. A furious storm sprung up before a landing could be effected, and Henrietta's vessel was driven far from the shelter offered by the harbor of Dieppe. In a few hours, the coast of Bretagne, the refuge of many an exile from England, rose in sight. The queen ordered the longboat out and was rowed on shore. She landed in a wild rocky cove at Castel, not far from Brest. Here she had to climb over rocks and traverse on foot a most dangerous path. At last she descended into a little rude hamlet of fishermen's huts, where she thankfully laid herself down to rest in a peasant's cabin covered with stubble. The Baz Bretons took her people at first for pirates and rose in arms against them, and the queen, exhausted as she was, was forced to explain to them who she really was. Next morning, the neighboring Breton gentlemen, being apprised of her landing, thronged to her retreat in their coaches, offering her all the service in their power. In all eyes, as she afterwards observed, she must have appeared more like a distressed wandering princess of romance than a real queen. She was very ill and very much changed, but the memory of Henri Cotte was still dear to the French people. His daughter was followed by their benedictions and was supplied from private goodwill with all she needed. She used the equipages so generously offered to convey her to the baths of Bourbon, where she sought health for her body and repose for her overwrought mind. Her first feeling, she declared, was that of penitence for her intended self-destruction, the indomitable determination of purpose, which all ancient writers, and too many modern ones, would have lauded as an instance of high resolve, worthy of a Roman matron, Queen Henrietta very properly condemned as sinful desperation, unworthy of a Christian woman. I did not, she said to Madame de Motville, when she related to her this adventure feel any extraordinary effort when I gave the order to blow up the vessel. I was perfectly calm and self-possessed. I can now accuse myself of want of moral courage to master my pride, and I give thanks to God for having preserved me, at the same time, from my enemies and from myself. The feelings of Charles I on his queen's departure, left desolate as he was to accomplish his sad destiny, are best known by his lonely meditations in his icon Basilicon. He says of her, Although I have much cause to be troubled at my wife's departure from me, yet her absence grieves me not so much as the scandal of that necessity which drives her away doth afflict me, namely, that she should be compelled by my own subjects to withdraw for her safety. 
I fear such conduct, so little adorning the Protestant profession, may occasion a farther alienation of her mind, and divorce of affections in her from that religion which is the only thing in which my wife and I differ. I am sorry that my relation and connection with so deserving a lady should be any occasion of her danger and affliction. Her personal merits would have served her as a protection among savage Indians, since their rudeness and uncivilized state knows not to hate all virtue as some men's cruelty doth, among whom I yet think there be few so malicious as to hate her for herself. The fault is, she is my wife. Here we think the conjugal affection of King Charles misleads him. The fact is that his chief fault in the eyes of his people was that he was her husband. He continues this observation with pathetic earnestness. I ought then to study her security who is in danger only for my sake. I am content to be tossed, weather beaten and shipwrecked so that she be safe in harbor. I enjoy this comfort by her safety in the midst of my personal dangers. I can perish but half, if she be preserved. In her memory and in her children, I may yet survive the malice of my enemies, although they should at last be satiate with my blood. Thus Charles, at a comparatively early part of his calamities, 1644, always looked forward to a violent death, but he was greatly mistaken if he supposed that the malice of party would be satiated with his blood. I must leave her then to the love and loyalty of my good subjects. Neither of us can easily forgive, since we blame not the unkindness of the generality and vulgar, for we see that God is pleased to try the patience of us both by ingratitude of those who, having eaten of our bread and being enriched by our bounty, have scornfully lifted up themselves against us and those of our own household are become our enemies. I pray God lay not their sin to their charge, who think to satisfy all obligations to duty by their corbin of religion, and can less endure to see than to sin against their benefactors as well as their sovereigns. But this policy of my enemies is necessary to their designs. They sought to drive her out of my kingdom, lest by the influence of her example, eminent as she is for love as a wife, and loyalty as a subject, she should have converted or retained in love and loyalty all those whom they had a purpose to pervert. Pity it is that so noble and peaceful a soul should see, much more suffer, from the wrongs of those who must make up their want of justice by violence and inhumanity. Her sympathy with my afflictions makes her virtue shine with great luster, as stars in the darkest night. Thus may the envious world be assured that she loves me, not my fortunes. The less I may be blessed with her company, the more I will retire to God and to my own heart, whence no malice can banish her. My enemies may envy me. They can never deprive me of the enjoyment of her virtues while I am myself. Surely, surely every woman must feel that it was a brighter lot to have been loved and mourned for by a man whose mind was capable of these feelings than to have shared the empire of a world with a common character in commonplace prosperity. End of section 8